Hey, listener. What are you doing on the evening of the 21st of March? Well, if you're in the London area, I assume you'll be at Bunga Live. Alpha Bunga Bunga is hosting its first live event. It's called Europe After Brexit, Internationalism or Transnationalism. We are going to be debating the future of Europe, and we're going to be doing something which is too rarely done, which is taking a European-wide perspective on what internationalism should be in the 21st century. Should it be mediated through transnational institutions, or must we revert to the nation-state as the prime site for organization? That consequently imposes very serious questions on what left strategy should be today. We've got past guests flying in to debate this live. We've got Katarina Penisi coming over from Portugal. We've got David Adler flying over from Athens. And we're going to have Lee Jones in place there too. It's a live debate, but if you're not able to be present there, we are going to be live streaming it. Please send us your questions. We're going to read out your questions in, a, in the live question and answer section. If you want to tweet us questions in advance, feel free to do that. Please use the hashtag Bunga Live. We want this event to be a real engagement with our listeners and to actually have a proper debate. So whether you're there in person, it'll be great to meet you. Or if you're joining us virtually, that'll be great too. You've got three days left to reserve your tickets. The tickets are free, but you need to reserve them via Eventbrite. It's bungacast.eventbrite.com. The link is also in the show notes. All the information is on our Facebook page, Twitter, and so on and so on and so on. All right, on with the show. Look forward to seeing you all on Thursday. That was not a real kind of bit. That was. <laughs> All right. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga. I'm Alex Hochuli. Today, Alpha Bunga Bunga is myself, George Hoare in London, Phil Cunliffe in Canterbury, Ben Fogel in Brazil. And we are delighted to welcome James Medway, who's an economist and was the former economic advisor to the Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer in Britain, John McDonnell, until about two weeks ago, he's just told us. And now he's currently working on a book on how to make the economy work for the many, not the few. So just full disclosure, we're actually recording this at quite a critical and uncertain moment in, in British politics. The night of the 12th of March, about an hour after Theresa May's Brexit plan was defeated by 149 votes, one of the largest of any British government. So maybe let's start there, James. Sure. Uh, what, what's, your, what's your hot take on that? <laughs> Oh, God. I mean, the, the problem you've got is uh, this is going to be transmitted or broadcast or at least put online in what, like a week, two weeks? <laughs> Sooner than that. Sooner than that. A matter of days. <laughs> <laughs> well, even a matter of days. I mean, you, you might have seen that Theresa May has just scheduled two, as she said she would, uh, two further votes um, tomorrow and the day after, uh, which is one on a no deal Brexit uh, and whether the House of Commons supports uh, leaving without a deal and another on asking the EU for an extension to Article 50. So so, so there's a great deal of uncertainty attached to all of this now. Uh, I mean, I, I suspect the votes probably more predictable than, than, than some have been, uh, those two, but I really wouldn't want to see it doing a hot take that will be immediately like uh, lukewarm <laughs> at best by the time actually anyone gets to hear it. Tepid take, yeah. Tepid take, yeah, kind of tepid and possibly wrong take. You know, that's the thing I'm trying to avoid. Um, 
I, I mean, look, God, I, the, the, there was talk about Theresa May. There is already talk about Theresa May going for a third vote. Um, a third vote on her deal would be very, very hard to justify. You'd probably have to ask for an extension at the very least just to create the parliamentary time to do it. Um, but that would kind of rule out actually the, the, the merit of doing a third vote, which is to try and frighten the hell out of everyone um, with, with the prospect of leaving without a deal. I mean, that, that was kind of her entire strategy was just to run down the clock and hope everyone got scared enough about actually leaving without a deal that, that they'd vote in favour of a deal just to avoid that that prospect. Uh, now what's actually happened is that that plan appears to have gone uh, pear-shaped because she's got to the point of having to go back to Parliament and ask whether they will rule out a no-deal Brexit or not. And I think it's presumably uh, the case that Parliament will rule out a no-deal Brexit, which, which sort of in theory deprives that threat uh, of any actual bite. Right. And I think we'll end up touching more on Brexit. And so as to avoid any kind of immediate takes, which will be proved wrong, we'll have a more in-depth discussion very shortly. But before we get to that, I'm going to bring in Ben right now. So let's begin with a little bit of uh, short biography. How do you get involved in John McDonald's team? And can you give us a bit of a uh, account of what your experience was there, what it was like to be in such yeah, historic sure. uh, moments as the chicken coup, the rise of... Owen Smith, remember him, and then of course the unexpected general election results. Uh, well, I, I I was prior to I mean this is going back a few years now. It seems really quite a lot longer. Um, going back three three and a bit years. So so prior to Jeremy Corbyn getting elected leader of the Labour Party in early no later September. 2015. I was chief economist at the New Economics Foundation, uh, and I've been working there for about five years. Um, which is a sort of usually describes itself as Britain's leading independent for which read you know kind of left wing uh, think tank. So so I was already working on really developing alternatives to neoliberalism in one form or another. Um, all of which prior to or most of which prior to Jeremy getting elected and prior to that sort of extraordinary summer of 2015 when it became clear that he could get elected. Uh, much of which had a had a kind of it wasn't an air of unreality, but you felt like you were describing something that could happen in the future and possibly a long way into the future, you were talking about something that might exist, which is this sort of hypothetical government of the left that could do these things. And you're trying to sort of argue that actually, you know, the, the, the what the left is saying, in particular, the arguments against austerity, which the government of David Cameron and, and George Osborne and, and even the, the Lib Dems, the, you know, Nick Clegg and that crowd, if anybody remembers any of these people by this point, uh, were pushing for. So this was very, very brutal uh, spending cuts, the worst spending cuts in Britain since public spending cuts since what well, usually you'd say the 1930s or thereabouts. Um, so arguments against that, arguments for alternatives to neoliberalism, to the process of privatisation, dragging the market into every part of life, that sort of thing. And, and of course, the rejection of that, and in particular, the rejection of the idea that the Labour Party had to go along with all this is what drove uh, Jeremy getting elected since September 2015 in the first place with this surge that, that seemed, if you were sitting in the middle of British politics, if you were sitting in Westminster, seemed to be utterly incompetent and come out of nowhere. Um, it, it happened really because there was a change to, to the electoral system uh, as to how Labour would elect its leaders. The, the thing, this is dates from 2014. The thinking was that if you sort of flung open the doors, um, if you allowed people to sign up to be a member or at least a voter in the leadership election to be leader of the Labour Party, if you allowed people to sign up with just by paying £3, then this was a sort of Blairite calculation, then because everybody else out there is also a Blairite, like the 
British public is crying out for a really right-wing leader of the Labour Party. They pay their £3, sign up in droves and drown out the left. So this was a cunning plan to get rid of the left forevermore, which obviously went spectacularly badly wrong on the simple basis uh. that... It didn't go yeah. so wrong. We have the independent group now. I mean, oh, I see. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. In, in a certain sense, yes. I mean, if you, if you took a very, very long view and decided that having the independent group was a world historic breakthrough for, for Blairism and neoliberal politics, <laughs> then yes, you, you could. You could say that. Uh, in practice, what, what happened was basically a whole load of people who had been pretty well excluded from Labour Party politics for a very long period of time in one form or another made very clear that, that anybody, you know, somewhat to the left of, of Tony Blair or Gordon Brown would be not well in the Labour Party and, and tolerated uh, as a nuisance at best, as were uh, Jeremy uh, and John as backbench MPs. They were sort of treated as somewhere between a, a pet and a nuisance. I mean, that's roughly how, how the, the sort of Blairite centre of the party treated them. That everybody on the left suddenly realised that, yes, they probably could actually, if Jeremy Corbyn was going to stand, they could pay £3 to, to end neoliberalism, right, which is a pretty good deal. I mean, it's the sort of thing people pay maybe 5 or £10 for, right? This is like, it's <laughs> so of course, everybody signed up uh, who, who who thought they were in the shout of voting for him and that helped propel the momentum small M of Jeremy getting elected. Um, he immediately appointed John, his, his sort of closest, uh, probably his, his, his closest collaborator in, in politics, I'd say in British politics. They've worked together as backbench MPs on every single campaign going on the left for 20 odd years by that point. Um, and John then asked me to, to come and work for him as an advisor. So that was the, the challenge of working out what, never mind the sort of hypothetical what a future left government could do if it wasn't neoliberal. There's a slightly more practical, immediate thing of how do you respond to uh, what this government was doing at the time with austerity and all the rest of it, and how do you devise an alternative programme? So that's really what I was doing for, for three years or so. Um, and I think with, with, I mean, obviously this is very largely due, obviously it's, it's, it's due to, to John's own sort of personal talents as Shadow Chancellor, who, role I think he's done exceptionally well uh, and that has helped drive through along with the movement along with you know the shadow cabinet support the fact that Jeremy's a good at articulating an alternative vision of what society might be like along with all those hundreds thousands of Labour members you can see how this has turned into uh, a plausible programme of government that codified really in, in the manifesto of the 2017 general election which was you know, as people know the story was leaked um the Shadow Treasury team was briefly blamed for this in a sort of coming Machiavellian uh, ploy to try and, you know, build support for the thing. But I can, I can safely say it wasn't part of any uh, grand plot. The draft of the manifesto was leaked prior to, to the election. This was a, a big list of what I'll call a kind of, you know, social democratic programme, how you might run the country. So it was going to, you know, reverse or correct some of the historic mistakes in terms of privatisation of the 80s and 90s, of railway, of water, of energy. Uh, it was going to increase taxes for the top 5%. Uh, you know, this is breaking this this unwritten rule in British politics. You can never talk about tax rises for anybody at all, ever. Um, and it was going to do things like introduce or reintroduce free education, uh, removed under a Labour government, under Tony Blair's government in 19. 98 and we were going to bring that back in and bring it back in for everyone so you'd no longer have to pay the nine thousand pounds a year uh, to go to university so so it was quite a bolt from the blue and a popular so, document yeah mm -hmm. so just just a bit of a, a question sorry it's george yeah, just, just yeah just a bit of a question i guess about how how did how was this received within the labor party this this uh, kind of set of policies that that you and john mcdonnell were were working towards was it uh, seen sympathetically or Mm, not quite so. The, the challenge was convincing people because you're doing something that hadn't been done for a while and there was this sort of weird received wisdom that, that basically 
and, and this was the, the secret, I think, of, of that kind of centrist argument. And, and ultimately, it fell down to a real pessimism about what was possible and what people might accept. And the received wisdom was something like, it is not possible for any party to talk about increasing taxes for anyone because everyone would just assume that's a terrible, awful thing and not vote for you. It is not possible to talk about renationalising things because this is just not popular. It's not possible to talk about um, getting rid of tuition fees because actually no one wants to do that and everyone's very happy paying their £9,000. And, and, and it's not possible to present a, a fundamentally different vision of society, which is what lurks underneath this, you know, society where we're not just assuming at best you can tinker around the edges, but actually you can do something quite fundamental to make the economy work in the interests of the great majority of people. It's not possible to do any of this. This was the received wisdom. This is a sort of negative argument for, for something like the third way for, for Blairism, for that kind of very, very compromised version of social democracy that com compromised neoliberalism in a fairly profound way. And it was a negative version of it. So so there was quite a, quite a, a sort of tense argument, you might say, or at least a, a slightly like one you had to be quite careful about presenting, which just to try and convince people this might work. James, could you be specific? I mean, is there some particular policies which were seen as uh, especially outrageous, especially beyond the pale by the predominant consensus? Uh, I mean, look, the, the entire, the, if you look at the, the, the way, if you take, let, let's take the, the sort of, the, the best sort of codification of this you have at this point in time was the 2017 manifesto, right? If you look at the way that that was treated by great sways of the media, which could, the, the Tory side could barely contain their glee that this document had appeared and said all these outrageous, unsayable things. Uh, and, and it was much sort of chortling and chuckling, and this was it. This was all over for Labour. This was an utter disaster. I mean, this is basically how the Telegraph presented it in page after page of scandalous announcement. You know, oh, God, awful. This is it for Labour. It's all done for. And then fairly quickly, within like basically a day, it became apparent that actually most of this stuff was was really popular. Now, th there's something quite weird in this. Like For years, for decades, consistently, if you dig out opinion polls, if you go and look at something really rigorous and big like the British Social Attitude Survey, you will find a good third at least of the population will always say they want more redistribution via the tax systems, they want higher taxes on, on, on wealthy people, will always say they want renationalisation of water, posts, railways, all this sort of thing. You will always find a third of the population say that. And actually in some things like bringing utilities, you know, like water or railways or whatever, back into public ownership, uh, you get huge majorities, mm. like 60, 70 percent support. And you get majorities even amongst conservative voters. And somehow, like the, 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 the supposedly, you know, that kind of centrist thing of like, we know how to win elections. We say the stuff that's popular. Everybody out there is right wing. Somehow this was just ignored or glossed over. It, it took the, the eruption of the manifesto to sort of drum home the message. Actually, this stuff is popular. So, I mean, the, uh, some, of the, some of the nationalization ideas, I think, as you just said, you know, do have really broad support, even amongst Tories, because it seems quite a rational economic plan that certain yeah. services should be, you know, state run. But there's some other elements which are a little bit more radical in terms of, for example, you know, worker ownership of of companies or, you know, the degree of cooperatives and so on, which I think we want to come on to discuss in a little bit more detail shortly. But I wanted to, to pass over to, to Ben. So in specifically, I'm going to change tact a little bit and ask you a quite a big question. Sure. And this is coming into you as somebody who's also working on this book, What Does Economics for the Many Mean?, so what distinguishes a sort of socialist uh, economic policy from purely a sort of more redistributive one, particularly when you have elements of uh, the Labour's economic plans, such as a common ownership fund? And I think this sort of quote 
from uh, John McDowell sums it up quite well. Uh, our objectives are socialist. That means an irreversible shift in the balance of power and wealth in favor of working people. But what does this mean in practical terms? And what was it like working and thinking through this? Okay, well, I'll take I'll take a small part of that, if you like, and, and a specific part of it, which is is, is something you mentioned about the, the distinction on, on redistribution, which, which, by the way, I don't think is the most important or the most significant part of, of what a socialist economic policy looks like. Um, but I think it's worth flagging it because I think you can start to see some of the arguments being quite sharp around this that for example you would find under the previous Labour government it was it was actually quite redistributive um, so you did have the tax system being used to take money from some people and give to other people uh, and yeah, and often you find people who are going to defend the record of that government and say, well, actually, it did an awful lot of redistribution this is what it did. The, the difficulty you've got and the difficulty that kind of you know, centre-left view of how you might sort of tweak the world a little bit to make it to get rid of some of the rough edges of capitalism is that you end up taking from people who are not particularly well off. I mean, they're better off than most. So you're talking into the 40s, 50s, 60s, that end of the distribution uh, and giving to other people and then uh, further down the income distribution, but often giving the way that that's, that's means tested, that's going to have some sort of, uh, you need to qualify for this thing to receive it. You need to demonstrate that you're poor enough to get that. You need to demonstrate that you have some absolute desperate need before you get this kind of, this handout. Um, Brown kind of nuances that a bit with things like tax credits. You know, that, that was quite a deliberate thing. But nonetheless, there's a degree to which what you receive from the state is going to be varying sharply according to how much money you're already receiving, that kind of thing. In other words, you, you lose this universalist principle. You lose the idea that you're, everybody's going to get something, right? So take the NHS. National Health Service is a very big universal provision. Everybody gets access to healthcare, And it's wildly popular basically because of that, because everybody can see they have a stake in it. What New Labour did was to sort of lose that principle, particularly around the welfare state. I mean, it already been significantly undermined, but to lose that principle and to start to say, well, actually, our redistribution is going to be from people who are quite well off, but not really the super rich. You're not talking the super rich here. And then we're going to give to other people on the basis of lots of means testing. So it's quite a, a different approach. You lose universalism. And instead of going for what I think became the real problem, from the 80s, 90s into the 2000s onwards, which is not even the 1%, it's like the normal 1%, it's the, it's the super rich. It is the people on absolutely phenomenal amounts of money the, that is where the concentration of wealth is in our society. Uh, instead of thinking that you're going to tax them, I mean, what was Peter Mandelson's phrase? We're, we're in, he's intensely relaxed about people becoming filthy rich, mm -hmm. right? You're not going to go for them. You're going to go for people a bit further down who aren't actually really the problem. The problem here isn't people on 50, 60,000 a year. It isn't. Right. The problem is on five, six, seven, ten, fifteen hundred million a year. That's the, that's what you need to start thinking about. So so that I think is two parts of the distinction. One is uh, strongly the manifesto of 2017. I think strongly what well, I don't I don't like the term particularly Corbynomics. I think it kind of it ties too much with this all, you know, the idea of the person. And this is this is how it often gets presented. It's all about Jeremy. It's not It's about a whole mass movement of people out here. But that's really what this this kind of socialist economics is about. Firstly, it's the principle of universalism. So something like make education free for everyone. Right. That is a point of principle. And to make sure it's fair, you tax the rich and that way everybody gets something. But if you're well off, you can help contribute towards the cost of that. That's what we do with the NHS. You can do it with education as well. Do you see what I, I mean? Wanted, 
I want to jump in just here, uh, James, because one thing that struck me about the also the kind of redistribution of the Blair era was yeah. also the way in which it was. So not only the kind of the um, who was targeted and uh, the means testing component, but also that it was misdirected. Because yeah. it seems to me one part of that era was also, um, you know, so there was lots of, inve- you know, say instead of investing in improving productivity to improve wages, instead they invested in short start. So in all yep. sorts of kind of um, intrusive mechanisms of uh, trying to kind of um, control and regulate away poverty rather than just improving the condition of workers. Or yep. I know, I mean, speaking from my own experience as an academic, um, universities increasingly came to be, their role increasingly seems to be defined by addressing inequality. So, you know, entirely ridiculous and extraneous imposition on universities. And I wondered how much that fit with what you're saying as well. Yeah, exactly. No, I think you've hit on the, the next and, and the more important part, which is not so much the the changes on, on, on tax and benefits. Although, although to just sort of wrap up that point, I, I think one of the most important things we did in the 2017 election was to 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 make the big, bold statement that nobody earning less than £80,000 a year would see an increase in income tax, basic rate of VAT or national insurance contribution. So those, those are the sort of three main taxes that most people pay. Um, and, and that meant that the you know the poorest 95% of people would see no increase in their tax and our spending programme would be paid for by the top 5%. Because what that gave you was the licence to be able to say to people, you know, if you get asked, how are you going to pay for all this free tuition increases in uh, social care spending, all that sort of stuff? Um you're going to pay for it by taxing the top five percent and going after the big corporations and it gave you the license to say that and it's a really good answer to give you know on the proverbial doorstep and, and when challenged by journalists because it, it's very very clear to people top five percent clearly have some money that's who's going to pay for all this new spending it gives you the license to, to sort of make that big claim which is which is quite a breach with this sort of you know sort of center left way of thinking about it where you, you try and say well actually we're going to have to chase people a bit further down the income scale it's like no we're going to go for go for the people at the, the top we think it's fair that they're going to pay a bit more that's one part of it the, the bit to deal with your question i think is absolutely right to to a large extent uh, no not to a large extent I'll, I'll rephrase that the main part of what we're doing the, the main part of what i think is important here is not to say okay here's the economy chugging along and it has some problems so here comes the government to redistribute some some money around the place to iron out those problems we want an economy that doesn't produce those issues in the first place you want an economy that isn't massively skewed towards london and some bits of london uh, at the expense of the rest of the country to which you then sort of redistribute a little bit to try and even that out right you don't want an economy that works like that you don't want an economy that's just producing vast amounts of co2 that's damaging the environment in lots and lots of different ways like tax alone isn't going to solve that you have to get into the guts of the thing and change it you have to change the institutions all right and this is the this is the point i think about structural reforms that particularly the document we put out two days before the election, uh, the Alternative Models of Ownership report, goes into some of the detail about how you make companies work differently, how you have different models of ownership of productive assets in society, including things like worker ownership, community ownership of energy production, this sort of thing. That once you start to do that, you fundamentally change how the economy operates. You don't need all the redistribution to try and sort of patch up whatever happens on the other side. You could even say that the redistribution is measure of failure not success 
that you don't want an economy where you have to redistribute uh, significantly as what the economy is mm. doing to patch it up. You want the thing to work for people in the first place. So that's the key to, to saying that, that we want to, for example, change how the Treasury makes uh, investment decisions. I mean, it's a bit technical, but, but the Treasury makes its investment decisions on the basis largely of something called the Green Book. It's a big list of rules. Uh, new Labour in office rewrote it. It's skewed towards decisions that will benefit their version of what business is and their version of what economic growth is. Now, that needs to be rewritten. I just, I, I, I just want to ask you a bit uh, on the, this question. I think fundamentally when you speak um, about uh, how to change the balance of the economy in terms of who it favours, yeah. one of the interesting things I found from Labour's economic <clears throat> policy book is its commitment to a sort of fiscal credibility rule, oh, yeah. which goes against one tendency which has become increasingly popular on the left, which is associated with mon modern monetary theory, which has been quite a polemical debate. And we'll come back to this later in the podcast, not this one, but uh, as a future guests. But I think this is important. And I'm going to ask you two que twofold question. Why should the left commit itself to fiscal responsibility, uh, which might be imposed on it by the international economic Order. And secondly, how do we view taxation instead of just a means, as we've spoken before, about balancing things around and making sure that, you know, the well-off help the poorer in terms of a fundamental more method of class struggle, how to fundamentally rebalance the economy in the interests of that weakens those who, contr who control the means of the production, uh, the 0.01% who have been benefiting in mm -hmm. since the global recession and well, look, I'd view the, the fiscal credibility rule, which which we, we announced, John announced back in um, March 2016. This is the, in summary, the idea that the government would um, look to get rid of the deficit, the gap between what it gets in taxes and what it spends on day-to-day -day spending, on current spending, so-called, uh, over the course of five years. It would target removing that deficit, but would be allowed um, free reign, almost free reign, to carry on investing in things that, that will you know, uh, there's a productive capital spending of, of various sorts, um, uh, with that including things like new infrastructure, new public transport, uh, research spending, lots and lots of things bracketed under that. Um, the reason we do that is is not not out of some you know sort of commitment to the abstract desire to get rid of the deficit or whatever. It is important to do this, but the reason it's important is the kind of political economy argument. I think the reason you do it is that you want to lock in place. Um, what you're doing and saying on the macroeconomy, in other words, on the big picture issues, on how the government's fiscal balance uh, looks, what kind of fiscal position it's going to be in, and you want to lock that in place because you want to be a transformational government. You lock it in place and you build this thing into the Treasury's thinking and you fix it there and you keep con governments consistently holding to these sets of rules because it gives you the firm, stable point in which you can organise and reorganise and change lots and lots of other things. So in other words, you kind of bolt this thing in place and the fact you have that stable point allows you to then go and make um, radical changes elsewhere. Now, more fundamentally, uh, I think there's a need for the left to get out of the idea the radicalism depends on just saying the government's going to spend more money. Yes, we will spend more money, right? The 2017 manifesto had about 48 billion, more than 48 billion of additional spending. Of course, you're going to spend more money because we're going to end austerity. The really um, difficult thing... I mean, doesn't this also fit in with a political argument? I mean, of course, it's the old sort of common sense of neoliberalism that a government can't spend more than it gets in, like a household. But part of what you're saying now is that if we rebalance the rules, we can bring in a lot more. 
It, what, what I'm saying is is that, I mean, look, neoliberal governments rarely have bothered that much about the deficit. Look what Reagan did. You know, the first neoliberal government properly uh, in the US, uh, deficits ballooned. So so the idea that neoliberalism is about getting rid of the debt or the deficit, or whatever, is, is for the birds. We at the minute have a neoliberal government that is committed to doing this. It's as part of its you know, extension of neoliberalism, if you like. But there's no necessary connection uh, between the two. As I said, what you want to happen is that you need some stable point. You need your macroeconomic position, your big picture position of the government to be as boring as possible. You need it to be absolutely locked and fixed in place so that you can then go off and make all the other changes that you want to make. And if you're serious about transforming this economy, the real radical argument isn't, well, hey, let's have more government spending. Yes, we will have more government spending. And yes, there will be taxes to pay for it. Yes, we will do that. But the real radical argument is how do you change how the economy operates in a fundamental way? In other words, it's not about taxation. It's not about spending. It's about changing institutions and building new institutions. And it's about changing ownership and control of how the economy operates. So in other words, that does include things like, OK, public ownership and nationalize or renationalization of the post office, the railways, that sort of thing. It also includes something that uh, I think you were, you were talking about earlier, uh, moves towards uh, worker ownership of major corporations. So the Inclusive Ownership Fund, for example, this this fund that over time will take an increasingly large share, uh, up to 10% of uh, large companies in Britain. So that is how you start to rewrite the rules of the economy, change the institutions. So in other words, you make good on what you quoted from John earlier, which is not just that you have a government that spends a bit more uh, because it's taxing a bit more so that public services work better. You will do that. But you're going to get to the point where all of these things are locked in place so the shift becomes permanent. And that becomes permanent because you've changed institutions and you have the public support to change those institutions so that you have things like a national education service, which is free education, cradles of the grave, that is as popular as the national health service, which does the same thing, for instance. So on the economy specifically, yeah, within the constraints of a capitalist economy, it still remains the case that well, or rather, it prompts the question, what is the engine of the UK economy? We know what it is currently, and we've been critical of what that is. If we want to rebalance away from finance, and not just in the sense of mm. banks, but the reliance on financialization across the economy towards other sectors, what does that look like for you? Uh, I mean, currently, you know, pharma and biotech are, are kind of major industries in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, important exports. Does that, do you see that continuing? Where do you see investment being directed? especially in a more state-led uh, model? The the like the first one in, on financialization, in other words, this sort of domination of the financial system over other parts of the economy, that, that's roughly what we got to. Uh, it, it's quite, you have to quite, I think we have to be quite careful with that, which is that, that there is this sort of, old left view that finance and industry are completely opposed to each other that you know and, and you can sort of drift into saying finance bad industry good you know making real things good finance terrible and it's a bit sort of crude in practice you'll find that most large corporations are up to their necks in various kinds of financialized uh, activity in any case that they will have separate financing wings that do all this kind of trading in options and derivatives of various kinds big uh, foreign exchange trades that sort of stuff so that that's big manufacturing concerns will do all of this so financialization 
inflation creeps in everywhere. Mm, but if you want yeah. to have an economy that's less dependent on this mechanism specifically of debt led growth, such as it is, this is kind of what we've seen reappearing since the crash. I mean, up to the crash, it was spectacular. You know, you had households taking on huge amounts of debt. This is what fuels economic growth all the way up to 2008. There's a period after 2008 where households somewhat repay their debt. And now you have this strange thing over the last year or so where households are taking on more debt, but in a, in a very sort of unstable form. So if you want to get completely away from that, you need households to have more money. What's happened since 2010 in particular is that real wages, average real wages have fallen. So the first thing you want to do is drive up for most people their real standard of living, which means more money in their pockets, because that means they're going to take out less debt. Right. So that's your number one thing to do. And the parts of doing that is you uh, improve uh, bargaining powers for workers. You make it easier to join a trade union. You make, uh, you know, you bring back uh, collective bargaining, central bargaining, various forms. You increase the minimum wage. This is all part of getting away from that financialized view of the economy. The second part of it, or not financialized view, I mean, you, you get away from, uh, from an actually financialized economy. The second part of it is you need to invest in uh, different sectors of the economy, most obviously, and um, Jeremy and John and uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey uh, talked about this. Most obviously, there is an urgent pressing need to decarbonise our economy and, and reduce its environmental damage in lots of other ways, but to decarbonise. And that is at the centre of the £250 billion uh, investment programme that Labour has talked about. So I wanted to I wanted to ask you a bit about this because, again, um, this is something which has got a, a lot of traction at the moment is the Green yep. New Deal, not least with um, how... Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the States has made it um, a major plank for her platform and is very directly associated with her as well. I suppose my concern is um, when I hear Green New Deal, um, what isn't associated with it, but I think should be, is you have a massive expansion of the state. And it's also something which is deeply tied up with the welfare warfare model of the mid 20th century. And I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the, the New Deal in the US kind of rolled right over into the Second World War. And it was the Second World War that effectively yeah. solved that solved all the economic problems of the US. So I'm very, I mean, I get suspicious when I hear something stretching from the Second World War being offered as a model for us at the moment. I I, I I share your 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 kind of the, the issues you raise there. I, I can I, I kind of share them, uh, and, and I would say firstly that, that look what what uh, AOC has done in, in the states has been absolutely fantastic in forcing this issue through, uh, and it's also had the impact in Britain that that like you know mostly everything is about Brexit. So for her to manage to cut through that with talk of a Green New Deal even here is is a tribute to, to her and her team, I think especially, and to raise the idea. That climate change is big and serious, so we need something big and serious to deal with it, I think is absolutely fantastic. Now, in a British sense, I'm not, you know, we can talk about a Green New Deal. I, I think there are more obviously bits of from Britain's history that, that might be better to talk about. I'm not sure if New Deal means that much to that many people in this country. It's quite a US-specific thing. Um, John and Becky, uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey have been talking about uh, you know, the green industrial revolution, and perhaps that's going to have more bite in terms of what we're doing. But also, I think there's, there's something to this, which is that if we think of the New Deal as only about government spends more money, it's state-directed, that's going to be enough. I think there's something, if you're talking about 
changing the economy so it's not damaging the environment as much as it is and dealing with the, the effects of, of climate change frankly like there's, there's elements of adaptation that are going to now have start uh, creeping in this isn't just government's going to spend some money that's going to solve things that's going to have to be part of it you know for example there's labor's announcement on creating many hundreds of thousands of jobs mostly that's or a large part of that is going to be through uh, retrofitting houses so you employ you know you can employ tens hundreds of thousands of people to do this it's very labor intensive but you go to everybody's house and you put in insulation in their loft so they save in their energy bills they reduce their energy consumption and you know, this is a very very big step towards decarbonizing the economy it reduces okay, but, your energy I mean, demand okay but that's you're, being state I, direct, you're right? losing but you're losing me now when you start talking about loft insulation and all this that doesn't seem to me like um kind of a grand vision for restructuring exactly i mean but surely exactly. the issue but surely the issue is just you know like all you need is nuclear power right I, loads and loads of nuclear power and this that solves the problems of a carbon economy well exactly and i think you touch on the other thing firstly the environmental problem isn't just carbon right this is biodiversity loss this is this is you know this is, rattle through any number of appalling things that are happening to the environment at this point in time. So even if you just chase after, let's get rid of greenhouse gas emissions, you, you don't resolve all the other things that are happening. The second part is some of this isn't going to come through the states, right? It can't come through the states, uh, largely because, take an example, Britain is particularly well suited to a big shift towards renewable energy in the form of wind power. We, we live in a you know kind of wet, windy island, broadly speaking. Uh, there's a huge natural resource there, but to access that wind power, you can't just build one really big wind turbine and then run pylons and electricity lines out of it like you can do with a, a nuclear power plant or a coal power plant you have to go where the wind is often that means going to to windswept and quite beautiful parts of the country where people not unreasonably think that they don't really want a whacking great wind farm built that obscures their view and, and messes up you know that particular part of the environment and, and it's not unreasonable to think that uh, and they will have that objection whether that wind farm is privately owned or publicly owned right so if you want to overcome that objection the, the clear thing to do is give people ownership over the wind farm that's going to be there and generating that electricity. This is what happens in Denmark, where you have, you know, a good 100,000 people involved, more than that, 100,000 uh, community wind farms that are owned by local communities. There's similar things happening in Germany. If you want to make a big shift rapidly to decarbonize, you're going to have to change how those renewable energy assets are owned, right? So this is where the two things fit together. Now, this gets you out of just being state-led. The state's there to encourage this, but it's not going to happen on the ground in quite the same way So because you shifted the form of ownership to make it happen faster. So that, that's kind of one example of that. You can, you can think of others. You can think of like you know, automation of farming. Uh, the increased use of automation in farming points the way that you can reduce use of fertilizer, basically because you can monitor soil use and, and, and how plants are growing much more effectively if you have lots and lots of sensors doing this and drones monitoring and all the rest of it, right? That That isn't necessarily something that the government can do very quickly and easily because you're going to have to get farmers to do it. You're going to have to sort of change all sorts of things there. So once you start to package all of this up, I, I, I share your concern that simply going, here's the government, it's going to do this thing, it's going to solve the problem. When you have a problem like the issue of the environment that is so widespread over every single part of the entire economy all at once and everything we do all the time, that you can't just go spend some money that's dealt with it. That isn't going to fix every single environmental problem uh, we can think of. So you mentioned two two issues, I suppose, which are pertinent um, both to what's happening at the moment in Parliament and also um, broadly to any, um, any future Corbyn or um, yep. other left-wing government. Which is, I suppose, Britain's um, 
Britain's place internationally with respect mm-hmm. to um, respect to global problems such as climate change um, and also agriculture. So we on the podcast, we've consistently um, spoken about the EU as um, the being the enemy of any kind of left wing government that would come to power. And I wondered if you could talk us a bit through what Labour's current position is in regards to Brexit and whether it was a mistake not to make a stronger case for Brexit. Uh, sorry, not to make a stronger case when for, for Brexit? Well, should they have made a stronger case beforehand rather than making the case for uh, the custom, you know, to stay in um, the single market and have a customs union? No, the, the, the challenge on Brexit is the one that, that's that's defined what, what Labour's done throughout, which is that you have members that are uh, not keen on Brexit for a variety of reasons, uh, which are, are understandable in a whole a whole load of different ways. In particular, the kind of the the deal that Theresa May is offering and, and fortunately failing to get through Parliament. And I, I would say on that deal, it is, it is hard to think of uh, any deal that you would strike with the EU on trying to leave the EU that would actually be worse than the one she's managed to come up with. It, it sort of sacrifices absolutely everything that might be worthwhile for the sole aim, sole purpose of doing something that Theresa May is weirdly obsessed with throughout her entire, at least front bench career, which is the issue of migration in particular, stopping freedom of movement. I mean, that's basically what it does. It doesn't really do anything else for anybody at all. It imposes all sorts of costs. Uh, if you're thinking about what a future left-wing government might do or might not want to do, it leaves in place the restrictions on state aid and on uh, competition policy. And these things are also written into the outline political declaration, which is, you know, underrated, I suspect, as, as, as part of the issue that's attached to, to the withdrawal agreement that, that is, is mostly the, where the debate fixates. Um, so it leaves all of that in place and arguably reinforces it. So this is an appallingly bad deal. So of course it's right to, to uh, oppose this. And by the way, I'd say unambiguously, unambiguously, staying in the EU is better than, than Theresa May's deal. It is an absolute shocker, uh, the sort of things they're trying to push you there. And there is no way any progressive could, could support it. Now, so, the, the challenge... Sorry. Oh, so yeah, just just on this point. So, what resistance um, from the EU do you think that uh, an economics for the many would face? Maybe you were just about to get to get onto this um, to this point. Well, the, this, the, the issue is, I mean, sometimes it's held up as like there is this absolute barrier. It is called EU. It makes everything you do impossible. It's not. That's not how it works, right? It does have a list of rules, um, broadly summarised as sort of state aid regulations, which define uh, what governments can do in terms of, for example, subsidising industries uh, and and or potentially actually cutting taxes for, for to try and attract industries here, that sort of thing. It also has a whole load of rules around competition policy, the idea being that there should be a level playing field across Europe for all companies in Europe. And that starts to impose restrictions on um, what you might want to do in terms of not having a market that always determines how any particular sector of the economy works. That, that's putting it rather abstractly. But but you can see, for instance, how some of the rulings around um, coming through around how railways are supposed to operate, this sort of thing, start to impose restrictions and start to impose barriers. Now, none of those barriers are completely insurmountable. It is a mistake to think that the EU is an absolute barrier to every single thing a progressive government ever would want to do. But those things can become restrictions what a government might like to do and it turns into an argument a negotiation uh, between yourself and you about what you can and can't do and what bits of your program start to operate there much of labor's program if you look at if you just take a sort of tax and spend point of view tax and spend doesn't really uh, touch on what the eu does at all 
the more interesting parts around nationalisation and changing ownership and that sort of thing and industrial strategy and regional assistant and setting up things like a regional development bank, arguably, and I must say this is just me offering my opinion uh, at this point, arguably could start to, to interact and, and not helpfully interact with some parts of EU law. So that's where it comes in. But the critical issue to get across here is that there there is no absolute hard and fast rule. Everything is political, right? So if you have a political movement and a government that wants to do things, it can do these things. Now, what's interesting on the EU side, uh, and we'll see where this ends up going, is that in response to what has clearly been happening since 2008, which is broadly governments across the world starting to act in a much more strategic way uh, in terms of their economy. In other words, they're dropping this kind of neoliberal thing of going, oh, well, there's a level playing field everywhere. We all do the same thing. We all accept the same rules. Actually, have governments act very strategically and deliberately to support certain industries. Uh, China obviously has been doing this for a long period of time. You can see elements of this coming through in the China-US trade dispute. What you see brewing inside the EU is an argument from France and Germany which you know, remain the two most powerful states inside the EU, uh, for changes to how their how their various state aid and competition laws operate because they want to start offering assistance to uh, particular companies and particular industries so they can take on competition elsewhere in the world. In other words, the big shift um, across the, the world economy is away from this kind of high point of neoliberalism, high point of globalization. We all accept the level playing field argument. We're all going to be in the World Trade Organization. All barriers are going to be removed. It's, it's you know, capitalism, free market capitalism everywhere, no regulations, all that sort of stuff. That is being ditched and, and being ditched at quite a rate. But it's, by being ditched by, but it's being ditched by people like Macron as well. Yes, yes exactly. And so, But I mean, you know, somebody who clearly has no... Um, democratic mandate. I mean, he's attempting to kind of reboot Blairism for France, and he has no kind of democratic mandate to carry through something in France, let alone across the European Union, for the kind of economic reorganisation which you're describing. Yeah, exactly it. And, and that's where we have to get in. I mean, Trump is acting strategically, like very obviously acting strate strategically and in, a, in an anti-neoliberal fashion when he tries to start trade war with China. But that, that, that is a very, very clear anti-neoliberal thing that he's trying to do, because this is not accepting, uh, you know, the kind of WTO framework of how you're supposed to operate with other countries. It's deliberately and aggressively uh, targeting another com uh, country and its industries in a very strategic fashion, both on the kind of obvious price competition side, like, you know, whacking tariffs on, on steel and various consumer products, and also more subtly, but perhaps more importantly, on the, on the kind of technology and, and control of technology side. So that, that's going on right now. Now, there is no sense at all that any progressive should support the Trump government, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily neoliberal. And I think one of the things, and this is where the new sort of arguments start to appear for the left, is that you, you have to learn to deal with governments that are not neoliberal, but they're in no sense progressive. Right. Or there's a, you know, there's just governments of the centre uh, like Macron, who is acting in part in a sort of anti-neoliberal direction. But it's the content of what he's trying to do and the way in which the state is being used that matters, not the mere fact that the state is being used. So that, that I think, is where the arguments on the economy have shifted and are shifting and will continue to shift over the next few years. So if if the behaviour of, of governments and, and perhaps the EU is, is to a certain extent unpredictable or informed by politics, there seems to be another um, potential barrier to to progressive or, or socially transformative economic project, and this is uh, the reaction of capital. So, what do you think might be the reaction of British capital to the election of a Corbyn government, and how do you think the left could or should um, plan for this? Perhaps particularly in the context of a weakened uh, trade union movement. Well, the, the the issue there, I think, is the, the first one is is the the obvious kind of 
left lefty sort of talking point for like what will happen if you have a left wing government is is based on a series of fears around you know bond vigilantes and like, you know there'll be a run of capital and all this sort of thing and and the government borrowing costs will spike so you can't afford to do anything. Uh, my own view on that is is that this is. For, for whatever it might have been a threat in the 1990s, and, and it was often used as a sort of a kind of negative reason for supporting third way, new Labour, new Democrat policies, it was just saying, oh, well, the bond markets won't actually allow you to do this stuff because we have this mm. huge global financial system that's uh, going to dominate anything you possibly want to do. What, what, what you see taking place now is that, firstly, government borrowing costs are so incredibly low and demand for safe government assets still so very high that it, it's, it's, it's just not it's just not the threat it once was. The, the, the prospect of government borrowing costs spiking when at the minute, you know, the, the British government borrowing costs are still just about negative in real terms. In other words, they're lower than rate of inflation. So basically people are paying you in real terms to, to borrow. Um, the risk of that spiking just seems to me not what it was. That if you look at what's happened to financial markets since 2008, that what was assumed to be this never-ending process of a deeper and deeper integration across all forms of finance, all the way, to, you know, that goes from 1982, let's say, to 2008, is that financial markets get bigger and bigger and become bigger and bigger than the real economy. And this becomes more and more a dominant factor in how world economies operate. That's been flung into reverse since then. World financial flows are down hugely on what they were in their 2006-07 peak. Um, so in other words, financial markets are not operating the same way they used to. So that but particular even, set of worries even, isn't really there. Even if we take... Even if we take that point, though, um, don't you still, um, when you still concede that there would be a need for um, for a kind of a, a serious left wing government, particularly a kind the one that would produce many jitters as Corbyn a Corbyn led government inevitably would, that would still need the option of capital controls, and that is capital controls that you cannot have in the European Union. No, I don't see that at all. I mean, first of all, you can't have them in the European Union. There, there is clear provision under under even the Lisbon Treaty to have capital controls if you want. Um, you know, capital controls of a form we used at the peak of the 2008 uh, crisis, but I just don't believe they're a useful or necessary part of um, what a left-wing government should be doing. Uh, for the reasons given, your principal problems here is like, what is your government borrowing cost? Do we expect that to spike? No, we don't. The longer-term issue that you face in Britain is, is never been really the government borrowing uh, problem. I mean, even, you know, you find Kenneth Rogoff, uh, the economist who, who George Osborne would always point to in the early 2010s as being one of the few economists out there who thought austerity was necessary in Britain, now turns around and says, eh, debt deficit, not really something to worry about. It's chasing after the wrong target. So that I don't view as a problem. The really big issue is, is frankly, our, our current account deficit and our ability to carry on financing that. But that is a long, in other words, sorry to clarify, the basically the, the trade deficit plus the deficit in flows of money uh, and income from the rest of the world. And that's hugely negative and has been for a very long period of time. And that is something that we need to operate on and work on. Now, part of that will be doing things like not being so dependent on importing energy from the rest of the world, which means, in other words, generating it domestically, which means generating it from renewable sources in particular, for example. This is the sort of thing you start to address with an industrial strategy, but that's a long-term transformation. That's why you have to think of, I would say, the next Labour government, not just one that's like, it's here for five years, let's do what we can, but it has to think about what are we going to be doing in 10 years, at least, for a time frame to how to transform the economy. And that is the time frame you need to operate on. And if you bolt in place the kind of macroeconomic framework represented by the fiscal credibility rule, and you're very, very clear and upfront about what you want to do, it minimises the scope for panic and all the rest of the other sort of terrible things that people talk about. That That's the first part. The second part is, I think, even more critical for anyone on the ground, is that 
all of this has to happen now, well before we get anywhere near forming a government. That's why things like the Preston model are so important, because it gives you an example to point out. And it says you can start to make changes now. You can start to change ownership now. That's why the critical bit, I think, for anybody who supports having a transformational government in Britain is not that we just wait until Jeremy Corbyn turns up and pulls the magic lever of government all the way to the left. I mean, that lever doesn't exist. You know, that we have to put in place things on the ground right now that already start to make those changes, because that's going to be a critical part of winning support for those changes and also making sure that we have a government that can actually put in place the transformational measures we want. In other words, you're already doing some of the work well before you get into government. I, th I think this is what John means by when he talks about in and against the state. In other words, yes, you want to form a government, but also you have to be doing things outside of that. So we need worker ownership now. We need local councils thinking like Preston, like you know, innovatively about how you can make some of these things happen on the ground right now, well before we get anywhere near uh, any kind of Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour government. And yet it's uh, notable that there's very little public debate, political debate on precisely these terms. And Labour has a challenge on its hands to do this. I'm going to pass over to Ben, who had a specific question sure. on the way that the, this debate is carried out. So one of the things we've seen over the last few years, really, and you've been in the Labour Party and at the core of mm. the policy team throughout some of this period, is how the attacks on Corbyn have worked. And it's very clear by now that the centre or the centre-right or centre of the Labour Party have no credible policy ideas whatsoever. They seem to be flirting with everything from reviving national service to uh, weird ways of starting wars with people. So what they've done, I think, is is try to throw as much mud as they have as they can against uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his allies until something s sticks. And it seems that anti-Semitism is the thing that is finally stuck. How has the sort of weaponization of uh, identity politics, which has be been kind of used the language associated with the left, but been promoted by the right, affected the ability to have a debate about policy within the Labour Party and beyond it? That, that is an enormously big question. I would just say, I think, you know, frankly, there needs to be an absolutely zero tolerance approach to, to anti-Semitism and any other racism, but uh, anti-Semitism in particular in the, in the Labour Party or any other institution. You know, this, this, this is not something that, that any reasonable progressive organisation, one with even a hint of it, should ever uh, consider it as tolerable within its ranks. And I'm glad to see that, that it's being dealt with uh, if by my, you know, Jenny Formby and her team. Um, that's the first bit. The second bit is that I think there's a, there's a deeper argument on, on the left, and, and this is one where we have to look to ourselves, which is for a long period of time, we've not had to think about um, economic issues. We've not had to think about what it might mean to be in government because we've been a very, very long way from it. I think there's a challenge here of political education, of winning ideas that are not sort of, you know, there's all sorts of swirl of things out there on the internet. It's incredibly easy to pick things up from all over the place and many, many different sources. And I think it's it's, it's imperative for anybody on the left to think through how we can get to the point where people are properly informed, where people have a reasonable argument, where people can understand what the issues are, that you don't go lurching off into you know, either sort of conspiracy theorising or worse, at the, you know, the far end of it, which is this sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And I do think there's an issue there uh, for the left to, to think through that, which means there's a process of political education uh, and how you deal with this. Now, that in the, moving off the specific issue of, of absolutely stamping out uh, even even a glimmer of anti-Semitism and also people just not recognising it, which I think is part of the issue. Moving away from that and onto what does political education uh, look like, I think some of that is it would be essential to have 
debates about economics and about economic policy that are informed and structured and taking place right the way across the country. I think this is part of, of, if you like, winning before you win. This is part of the process of how you get an actual transformational government in Britain, that you have a large number of people who know what the economics are, arguments are, who can debate what we might want to do in government, and also, I think, have a kind of informed imagination about what to do next. And if we look at the 2017 uh, manifesto, this is a, a good starting point. It's, it, it gets us out the door. It says some useful important things but you know if the next election is 2022 and it might not be but if the government doesn't fall before then it will be we can't just run the same manifesto again we can and there will be different issues by then i mean climate change i, I think will be a doorstep issue by 2022 uh the issue of what to do about the digital economy broadly defined i think think will be there that we need to think through how we address those challenges what is the new language what are the new policies what are the next steps for a government that says it's going to be transformational because it has to be it has to deal with inequality it has to deal with climate change it has to deal uh, i think with the emerging issues on, on the digital economy if it's going to be transformational we need people with the kind of informed imagination to think through what that might mean and to get there is a process of political education in particular on how the economy works and what economics does and how the arguments we have now can start to build out into into a policy debate i think this is very exciting i think it's potentially very exciting to say that we can have an actually informed argument about economics about policy that will lead to conclusions that might meaningfully make something happen when we're in government but that needs to happen in a very very large scale it means every labor party member and far beyond ranks of the labor party starts getting involved with it absolutely and i think it, it is very apposite for you to highlight the fact that this process of economic education and indeed a broader form of political economic or political education takes place uh, at a period which suddenly sees the return of politics which is what we're all about so i'm very glad that you highlighted that and we're very happy to to have you on to discuss these issues we're obviously entering a period which uh, is particularly turbulent in in british politics uh and so we would love to have you back on at some point very soon <laughs> depending on no, how things develop thank you very much james no thank you